1984, Elizabeth Kenyon taught children at Coral Gables High School, which is south of Miami, Florida, but hoped one day to return to fashion modeling. At age 23, she was the kind of beautiful young woman that turned wind's heads. And two years earlier, she had won the title of Orange Bowl Princess and had been a finalist in the Miss Florida contest. With thick brown hair and a wide, sociable grin, she made friends pretty easily. On March 4th, Kenyon left her apartment in Coral Gables to visit her parents in Pompano Beach, a trip that she made every weekend. Her father noticed that she had bruises on her arms and legs that day, and alarmed, he asked her what had happened. She shrugged it off as a schoolyard fight that she had broken up. Elizabeth stayed with her parents until 9 that evening and then got into her car to return home. Her roommate recalled that she arrived around 10 and went to bed. She went to work the next day and she spoke to Mitch Fry, the school's police officer and security patrol in the parking lot. He watched her get into her car and drive away. Fry was to be the last person that saw Elizabeth Kenyon alive. On Tuesday, she did not show up for work, so Fry called her roommate and learned that Beth had not come home the night before, nor had she called to tell anyone where she was. Beth was not the type that would go somewhere without telling someone. Calls to others who knew her had everyone worried. Her parents started calling around to friends in the hospitals with no luck. Finally, they contacted the police at the Metro-Dade Public Safety Department and filed a missing persons report. Several days went by with no news, so Bill Kenyon took matters into his own hands. He hired a private investigator, Kenneth Whitaker, to look into the matter. He discovered that there were several men in Beth's life, and thus several potential suspects. Beth had been on a dinner date recently with a man from West Germany, and she had begun seeing a man again whom she had broken off a relationship with, and she had been occasionally having dinner with a former boyfriend, a photographer named Christopher Wilder. She had told her father that on the first date, Wilder had been a real gentleman, and after a few more dates, he'd even proposed marriage. But Beth had felt that at 17 years her senior, he was too old for her, so over the past two years, they had remained friends. Whitaker questions Beth's parents about each of these men and learned that Beth had mentioned Wilder to them the day before she disappeared. He'd gotten her an opportunity to do some modeling for good money. Yet a call to Wilder produced only disappointing results. The man claimed he had not seen Beth in over a month. The other two men did not seem like viable suspects either. The investigation seemed to have reached a dead end when another former boyfriend stopped at a gas station in Coral Gables to show Beth's picture around. It was a shell station where Beth normally bought her gas. To everyone's surprise, two attendants said that Beth had been there on Monday afternoon. She was about to pay when a man in a gray Cadillac drove in behind her and paid the bill. Beth seemed to know him and she mentioned that they were on the way to the airport. When the attendants were shown photographs, they easily picked out Christopher Wilder as the man that was with her. Beth's car was subsequently found at Miami's International Airport, yet she had not packed to go anywhere. The police would not help with what was still a missing persons case, so Bill Kenyon staked out Wilder's house himself. When he did not find the man at home, he sent his investigators to the beach um, to ask about Wilder. They told the police in Boyton Beach told Kenneth Whitaker that Christopher Wilder had a very lengthy rap sheet. He was far from the quote-unquote gentleman that Beth had once described. He had a history of sexual offenses. Beth's parents suddenly realized that on the very night that Beth had visited for the last time, they had seen a television report about another missing woman, one who looked very much like Beth. The Kenyans were chilled by the resemblance. 
Their instinct was that Wilder had been involved in their disappearance and that perhaps he had abducted both women. And as it would turn out, Elizabeth Kenyon's parents were right. Christopher Wilder would go on a killing spree and leave a wake of murdered and missing young women behind him. You are now listening to Murder V Wrote. I'm your host, V. together that maybe the death of their daughter or missing daughter and the disappearance of another girl that they saw in the news could be connected they assumed that maybe Christopher Wilder had abducted both women Rosario Gonzalez who was 20 years old had disappeared on February 26th of 2000 she had been working a temporary job distributing aspirin samples at the Miami Grand Prix racetrack where she had witnessed that she had left around noon with an older man. She too had pretty dark eyes and long brown hair. She had not even picked up her paycheck. Nothing clearly linked the two disappearances except for that Kenyon knew Christopher Wilder who sometimes drove cars and races and often hung around at the Miami racetrack. Also, both had participated in the Miss Florida contest and wanted to be models. That Wilder had lied about be seeing Beth made him a suspect. Now look at his case file with the Boydton Beach Police Department convinced the private investigator that Wilder could very well be a sexual predator and Beth's rejection of his marriage proposal may have elevated her danger. Kenneth Whitaker went to an ex-police officer to talk with Wilder at his office at the Sawtell Construction Company in which he owned as part as a partner. Wilder pulled up in the gray Cadillac described by the gas station attendants. Yet inside his office, he repeated deny he repeated his denials of having seen Beth in the past few days. He insisted that the attendants had the attendants at the gas station had made a mistake about their identification. Then he brought his secretary in to vouch for his whereabouts, but that proved to have been a mistake. The investigators told her that they were looking for Beth Kenyon, and she said yes, the girl whose car was found at the airport. No one had mentioned the airport and finding the car had not been made public. The secretary seemed flustered and asked Wilder if that wasn't the information he had given her. But Wilder was quick. He said that Beth's mother had told him that. Mrs. Kenyon later denied it. Around the same time, the police learned that Rosario Gonzalez, the other missing woman, had also known Christopher Wilder. That information spurred them into a, a countywide manhunt following numerous leads and tips, many of which were mistaken identifications or dead ends. Then Whitaker informed them that Christopher Wilder had been at the Miami Grand Prix and he was a suspect in Beth Kenyon's disappearance. These disappearances became a more serious matter and the regular detectives from Metro Dade were now assigned to Beth Kenyon's case with the possibility that the same suspect had kidnapped two women within a week's time. They placed information in the newspaper hoping to get some help from the public. Just as Christopher Wilder was celebrating his 39th birthday on March 13th, the police were collecting a file on him. 
And three days later, he read in the Miami Herald that a race car driver and wealthy contractor was suspected in the disappearances and he realized it was time to move. He did keep his appointment with his therapist who was treating him for the sex crimes that he had received parole for. Knowing his preference for girls with long hair and his fantasy about holding a girl captive, the therapist asked him if he knew anything about the missing Rosario Gonzalez. He looked her in the eyes and denied it. Two days later, he dropped his three dogs out of the kennel, withdrew a substantial amount of money from the bank, and told his partner that he was being framed and was not going to jail. He got into his 1973 Chrysler New Yorker sedan and drove off. He said to others that the stress was bad for him, and now it was about to provoke a shocking spree. So let's talk about Christopher Wilder. He was born on March 13th, 1945. He is the oldest child or was the oldest child of American naval officer and an Australian native. Immediately after he was born, um, he was so close to death that the priest actually gave him his last rites and he actually recovered though and he remained pretty sick um, for the majority of his early life. And a year later, he had basically a siege attack of seizures that made him faint. His childhood was fairly stable, but he did do some window peeking in early adolescence and got into trouble when he was 17. He was actually arrested around this time with a group of his friends for the gang rape of a girl on a beach in Sydney, Australia. There was no justice really for this girl. He pleaded guilty and received a year of probation with counseling and electroshock therapy. That apparently provided some fuel for his fantasies Unlike before his treatment, he now imagined shocking the girls while having sex with them. Therapists noticed that his need to dominate women and his desire to turn them into slaves for his pleasure. He wanted to hold a woman captive against his will. So we see that these tendencies and desires started very early with Christopher Wilder. When he was 23, he married a woman who soon discovered his dark sexual side and left him only after eight days. He had taken photographs of naked women and had them in a briefcase, and he apparently used these to try to force a nurse into having sex with him. Instead, she went to police but did not press charges in court. Around this time, Wilder, who had lived in the United States at one point during childhood, immigrated there in 1969 and settled in Florida, where he did very well for himself um, during a building boom in electrical and construction business. He bought a nice home. He began racing cars. Um, and he developed his photography hobby. He got into real estate, which further kind of enriched his, his monetary situation. And he had a speedboat, lots of sporty cars, and a home with an indoor-outdoor pool. And he was really known to host some wild parties. Just very much a kind of rich bachelor playboy lifestyle in Miami. But he got into trouble again. In 1971, he was turned into the police for trying to get women to pose for him in the nude. He wanted to take their photographs, but he got off with just a fine. He laid low for a while, then he resurfaced with the police. When a home he was doing renovations in, he forced a high school student to have oral sex with him. She turned him in, and this time he went to court. When asked if he was sane enough to stay in trial... He told the judge that he was masturbating twice a week to the mental image of raping a girl. He did not think that what he had done to the girl was wrong. A doctor examined him and said that he was not safe in an unstructured environment. He had other psychiatrists recommend supervised treatment. Wilder tried to get his lawyer to make a deal, but the case went to trial. Nevertheless, the jury acquitted him. 
His next act, three years later, was outright rape. He adopted the name David Pierce to approach two girls in a shopping center and imposing as a photographer who needed models for a job he had under contract. One went with him. He drugged her and forced her to have sex in his truck. She turned him in, but he plea bargained the charges down to probation with therapy. At that time, he claimed he suffered from blackouts on the weekends. He was scheduled to see a sex therapist who, over months of treatment, believed that he had made progress. Wilder returned to Australia to see his parents, but did not stay out of trouble. In 1982, he was accused of grabbing two 15-year-old girls from a beach and forcing them to pose without clothes for photographs. He says that he bound them into subservient positions and masturbated over them. He then let them go and they went to police. His parents posted his substantial bail and he was allowed to return to Florida until his trial, which was set five months away. It was then postponed postponed again and by the time his hearings were finally scheduled in april of 1984 he wasn't an easy man to find he'd even had one of those judges under judges who understood the danger of him as a sexual predator he might have been stopped before so many people died it is believed that police involved should have asked wilder at the time to take a, a polygraph in the elizabeth Kenyon disappearance rather than just accepting his version of events it was a mistake that allowed this man to get away and commit a bunch of horrible murders and rapes of women they had enough to make to get him to make the request and not doing so was considered a serious misstep by many in the crime community and law enforcement community it was also a mistake not to place him under surveillance um, the instant a link between him and the two missing women was suspect. All, it is suspected that almost right away, he picked up a girl in Merritt Square shopping mall on the Sunday, the day after he left, by luring her with the promise of a modeling career, her ultimate ambition. Terry Ferguson was from Satellite Beach, Florida, two hours north of where Wilder had departed. She had not. She was not far from where, home from where she disappeared, and she had been last seen at several different stores in the mall. Her stepfather found her car still parked there. An hour after she was last seen, Wilder called for a tow truck to come to the state road near Canaveral Groves to pull his car out of the sand. It was a lover's lane, but Wilder was alone, and he claimed that he had simply gotten lost. The tow truck driver didn't think much of it, and he paid the tow um, with his business partner's stolen credit card, and once free, he was on his way. Five days later, on March 23rd, a female body was found 20 miles west of Terry Ferguson's hometown, dumped in a snake-infested canal. The body was identified from dental charts as Terry's. Once the story ran in the local newspaper, a witness came forward to say she had seen a long-haired brunette talking to an older man. Looking through mug shots without hesitation, she picked out Christopher Wilder as the man with whom Terry had been speaking. Christopher Wilder's next attack occurred the following day when he lured a 19-year-old Florida State student, Linda Grover, into his car, again under the promise of modeling work. He knocked her unconscious and drove to Bainbridge, Georgia. When she became conscious in the backseat of his car, he choked her and stuffed her in the trunk of the car. He drove Linda Grover to a motel, um, and then he had driven her car to various places before abandoning it. Um, and then this is how they settled in Bainbridge, Georgia, close to Louisiana. Linda was 19. She was blonde and, and pretty and had fallen for this ruse of, of a photographer who was looking for models. With her, Christopher Wilder was able to really kind of play out his wildest 
fantasies and it gave the police a window into really kind of more detail about what Wilder's very peculiar um, MO was. Around 11 that night, Linda is screaming in the motel and she wakes up the other guests and a man who was God bless him, a, a good Samaritan was intent on locating the source of this screaming and he passed another man with a suitcase who was rushing out. The stranger was in a hurry and excused himself and began speaking in a foreign accent. He said he sped out of the parking lot as to escape someone and the screams had stopped so there was no way to find the room from which they had originated. However, Linda, this brave, remarkable woman, gathered up the strength to leave the room and she made it to the night manager's desk at the front hotel office and he was stunned to see her standing there she was wrapped in only a sheet and her hair was soaked through with blood and something was wrong with her eyes but she urged the man to call the police immediately and he did he called an ambulance as well and they were able to determine that the girl's eyelids had been glued shut and they found bruises all over her body the motel clerk supplied police with the name of the man who had registered for the room, paying with cash and using a Florida's driver's license. He was in his mid to late 30s, around six feet tall, deeply tanned, and physically fit. He had thinning brown hair and a trimmed beard. A search of the room revealed that while the man may have packed quickly, he had taken anything that could have helped them identify him. Yet there were blood stains on the wall, duct tape on the floor, and an indication someone had used the bed. It was time to speak to Linda. At the hospital, she offered police that she had been shopping at a mall where she went to near where she went to college, and in the parking lot, a man had approached her. He told her that he was a photographer looking for a model, and that she would only need to go by go with him to a nearby park, no obligation. He told her that she was the fresh face that he was seeking, and he would pay her twenty five dollars for less than an hour of work. Linda was thrilled with this. He seemed sincere and credible. She said that he was well-dressed in a pinstripe suit and was not really pushy. She had hesitated for a moment, but decided to go along with him as he seemed pretty harmless. At his car, he had shown her some fashion magazines and claimed that several of the impressive photos were his work. Something told the girl not to go with him, though, so she thanked him and then declined his offer. And at the moment that she turned or tried to turn, he punched her hard in the stomach. He then hit her in the face and pushed her into the car. She couldn't breathe, let alone struggle, and he was already in the car and driving fast before she got her bearings. He stopped at a, ne a near wooded area and he placed duct tape over her mouth and bound her hands together. A little farther away, he stopped again and placed her in the trunk of the sedan. She lay there bound and gagged for hours while he drove. When he finally stopped, he wrapped her in a sleeping bag and carried her over his shoulder into the motel room. Christopher Wilder told Linda that if she stayed quiet, he wouldn't kill her. He then began to subject her to torture. Um... It seems that Christopher Wilder intended to keep her there and torture her over a period of several days. Um, I just want to put a trigger warning here. This um, is a lot. Um, I'm going to try to kind of go through it and just the facts and not really dwell on it too much. Um, but this is important to kind of get a real sense of what Christopher Wilder's MO was and how deeply sick he was. Um, and how deeply twisted he was and what he was really doing to these women when they were alone. And this is the only 
one other but this is the first account that we have from somebody um discussing what he did to her um so if this is too much for you and you need to fast forward i understand completely um and just catch back up with us in about two and a half minutes linda said that he made her undress and then lay down next to her and he masturbated um he also shaved off her pubic hair and then put a knife to her groin to see how she would react he then made her perform sexual acts and then finally he raped her twice and at this time he was watching television and he hoped that this and linda kind of hoped that this would be the end of it but apparently he decided to make things more interesting for himself so he pulled off and like pulled out an electrical cord that he had cut down the middle and fashioned for a specific purpose and had affixed a switch to it and she found out that this contraption is that he was going to apply two open copper wires to her flesh and then use the cord to painfully shock her feet afterward he used a bottle of super glue with an applicator to force her eyes shut and then use a blow dryer to harden it he didn't do a great job um linda was able to kind of see what he was throwing through the tiny slits that weren't closed up by the super glue he turned channels until he found an aerobic show and then he ordered Linda to get up and dance the way the women were dancing on the television and she could barely see but she complied to the best of her ability and her feet were still wired to these copper wires and so when she didn't perform like she wanted him to which she couldn't see he shocked her into obedience. The television seemed to mesmerize him and for a while he stopped paying attention to her and remained glued to the screen. She thought she might be able to escape, so she moved towards the bathroom, and he came at her, grabbing a hairdryer to hit her in the head. He told her that if she tried to escape, he would kill her, and now she faced that possibility. She was terrified. Nevertheless, Linda struggled with him and, was ma and managed to get into the bathroom and lock the door. Her eye had been gouged and was bleeding, but for the moment, she was safe. She turned around to the wall that was shared between rooms and pounded, screaming as loudly as she could. She heard fumbling in the room and then the door slammed closed and she prayed that Christopher Wilder was gone. Yet she waited fully half an hour before she dared to venture out to sea. She hoped her screams had frightened him enough to where he had left. And when she cracked open the door, sure enough, he had packed his things and left. He'd even taken her clothes, but she thought he might still come back. So she ran out and grabbed a bed sheet to cover herself. And that is the moment that she made it to the motel's um check-in offices after she told the story the sheriff issued notices to all patrol cars to be on the lookout for a cream-colored chrysler sedan and sent bulletins to neighboring states they also sent a notice to the fbi since it was a kidnapping and they could now step in in fact they had already been on the case while wilder was still in florida Aware of the two missing girls in Florida, they gave this incident a lot of attention. Christopher Wilder was a convicted sex offender and a very dangerous man, and at this point, he was desperate. Yet his knowledge that the law was after him, he was clearly unafraid of approaching and grabbing girls along the way anyway. No one stopped the car or spotted it. Wilder managed to get all the way to Texas, where he found his next victim. Terry Diane Walden was a 24-year-old nurse from Beaumont and a mother of two, and she told her husband on March 21st that a bearded older man had approached her and asked if she would pose for him as a model. She had turned him down and he had asked her to go with his car to see some samples of his work. She requested firmly that he leave her alone. Then two days later on that Friday, she disappeared. Her husband failed to make any connection at first. 
A friend had seen her around 1130 that morning hurrying through the student union at college where she took classes. Her burnt orange Mercury Cougar was gone from where she usually parked it. Her frantic family went through the weekend trying to locate her. Then on Monday morning, March 26th, a worker found her floating face down in a canal near a dam. She was fully clothed. The pathologist found that she had tied up with different types of rope at one point, gagged with tape, and stabbed multiple times, but there was no indication of sexual assault. Forty detectives were assigned to the case. They found a strip of duct tape in the water, footprints nearby, and tire tracks, but could not find Terry's car. This is when the FBI stepped in to help. They knew that Wilder had taken stolen license plates as Baton Rouge shortly before um, to place on his Chrysler, and that he had stayed in a hotel near Beaumont where he had registered under his partner's name, L.K. Kimbrell. Terry's husband supplied a description of this man who had approached her, and it matched Wilder's description. Then his abandoned Chrysler, missing its plates, was located. It appeared that he had removed the stolen plates from his car and probably put them on Terry's car. At least they knew the car he was using and the license plate number, but he had a head start. By then, he had reached Nevada via Oklahoma and Colorado, and reports of missing women were turning up almost daily. On March 25th, Wilder had grabbed Suzanne Logan, 21, from an Oklahoma City shopping mall where she had driven after dropping her husband off at work. Because she did not keep an appointment that afternoon or pick her husband up, he reported her missing. On the same day that Terry Walden was discovered, a fisherman found Logan floating in a reservoir. Unlike Walden, she had been tortured and raped before she was stabbed to death. Some of her clothing had been removed and her face was badly bruised. She also had small cuts on her back and was stabbed superficially with the knife. Her pubic hair was shaved and her long blonde hair had been cut off. Eventually, a maid found her hair in a wastebasket at a motel. Logan had likely been lured there by her interest in modeling and that she was probably dead less than an hour when she was found, but was not identified for over a week. Shortly after Suzanne Logan was discovered, but in Colorado, a blonde Cheryl Bonventura, who was 18, was kidnapped from Grand Junction Mall, and a witness described a bearded, well-dressed man who looked like Wilder talking with her. He had wandered through the mall soliciting women for photographs and modeling jobs. Someone had seen him with Cheryl, a girl who had already done modeling and hoping to do some more. She had likely been an easy mark for him. Her Mazda was left in the parking lot, locked with her sunglasses inside. With a nationwide alert now targeting Christopher Wilder as a fugitive and predator of pretty girls, the missing persons report received immediate attention. A waitress later said that she had spotted Cheryl on the same day and she disappeared after having lunch in Silverton, Colorado, 100 miles away with a man who looked like Wilder. She had given her name to the waitress and told her that they were heading for Vegas. Another teenage girl had eaten lunch and left the restaurant with them as well. Wilder and company spent the night in a motel in Durango and went into Las Vegas, but that was the end of the ride for Cheryl. Wilder was already scouting out his next prey. She disappeared from Las Vegas on April 1st. Only 17, but highly photogenic, Michelle Korfman had been a fashion show sponsorship um, by Seventeen Magazine, and a photograph examined later showed Wilder in attendance, smiling broadly as he watched her. She wanted to be a model. It probably wasn't difficult for her to for Christopher Wilder to persuade her to convict, to accompany him or to at least listen to him until he had her at a disadvantage. Witnesses saw them leave together and other people recall him approaching a number of women that day without, about modeling. Eight turned him down, but some had agreed to meet him in front of Caesar's Palace. He had not shown up. 
Michelle's car was found, which meant that Wilder was still driving the orange Mercury. On April 3rd, the FBI placed Wilder on the 10 most wanted list, and the intensive manhunt picked up steam. The FBI at this point was in its infancy as far as behavioral analysis was concerned, and certainly we, if you are into true crime, some of our, our first introduction to the BAU is probably Criminal Minds, um, the fictitious show that follows a group of um, behavioral science investigators as they use what's known as profiling to um, figure out what is what is making these serial killers or unsubs as they call them, unnamed subjects um, or unknown subjects tick. They try to use this to find clues and patterns to figure out where they're going to strike next and how they can stop them before they commit any more murders or, or crimes. So at the time of Christopher Wilder's killing spree, it had been in operation for about six years. And at this point, it was still being called Behavioral Science Union Unit. And John Douglas was the chief and uh, the agents were developing a computer base, which we now know as BICAP. They had gone out to a number of locations to assist with serial crimes like rape and murder, and now they had Christopher Wilder to consider. In Wilder's case, they knew who the perpetrator was. They just didn't know where he was or where he would strike next on this path of, of destruction of his. Several times, they arrived at a motel or restaurant within hours of his departure. He kept stealing license plates and driving in erratic directions, and he was exceedingly difficult to predict. And as we all know, a lot of this is based on the ability to be able to predict someone's movement. And he was proving very elusive for a very young behavioral science unit at the FBI. Um, while they had judged him to be a classic serial killer, in retrospect, there are many criminologists who classify him as a spree killer. Um, I think I agree with this. Um, Yet, if he had killed the two women that he abducted in Florida and had considered the pattern without getting nervous and running, then he would be a serial killer. There was some evidence later that he might have killed several years before, but that is kind of unknown, so we won't discuss it at length here. And we have discussed this a bit before when I was um, in the episode where I covered Andrew Cunanan, um, who murdered... Um, Famously, Gianni Versace, but many other men in the, the, the prior to getting to Versace. Um, and they always talk about, is he a serial killer or a spree killer and what's the difference? So if you're interested in that breakdown, um, you can go back and check out that, app, that episode in particular. But long story, very short. Um, for me, the reason that he is a spree killer here is because... It seems up until the point that he had gotten spooked and ran that he would have maybe killed and probably would have been classified as a serial killer. But because um, but because the Miami Herald running the report about the missing women spooked him and scared him, the stressors triggered him to essentially start killing at a more rapid pace and basically picking up women wherever he could because of this negative triggered stress that he was experiencing granted he the stresses of his own making because he was a serial killer but this is what turned him into a spree killer christopher wilder was compulsive about killing it was mostly rooted in sexual addiction he's a charming white male in his 30s and he was spurred by these sexual fantasies that he has had since boyhood and excited by a very specific type of victim in this case, beautiful young women who could be models. Um, this is why he was dubbed the beauty queen killer. 
He was a highly mobile. Um, he was willing to drive long distances to keep doing what he was doing. He did not have what we normally would consider like a hunting ground or a specific space in which he was comfortable, in which he wanted to keep killing people. Usually you have people that do that and they just want to kill in the area that they are comfortable with. Um, in his case, that was not the case. And it actually is not unusual for most serial killers to drive between 100,000 miles and 200,000 miles in a year to satisfy their appetite for murder. Putting him on the 10 most wanted list did generate more publicity about him countrywide, and it made it clear that catching him was an urgent matter. Um, it says that the FBI did not want to reveal many details of Wilder's brutality for fear for, of inspiring copycat crimes. So authorities monitored the use of the credit cards Wilder had stolen from his partner, but it was still difficult to really determine where he was going. They expected at some point, though, that he would try to leave the country. So the best bet for him at this point was Mexico, since the government would not extradite a man who might face the death penalty or life without parole, which is what would happen with Wilder. And at the very least, it could take years, allowing him the ability to maybe escape Mexico and go to somewhere else. So to try to get a better sense of Wilder's personality, they interviewed people who knew him. His business partner said that he spent a lot of time watching television because he didn't have much else to do. While others claim that beautiful women came to and from his house in droves. He even had a girlfriend who could not believe the charges that they were accusing him of, although she did recall several strange incidents. Once Wilder had commanded her to leave his home and fearing that he might hurt her, and another time she had woken up to find him at the foot of her bed, he claimed he did not know how he had gotten there or why. Someone brought forward photographs that Wilder had left for developing, which included women he did not know and prepubescent children. He told his girlfriend that his photography hobby was a sickness, but he had to do it. I will note here um, that it, it seems like everyone around Christopher Wilder was very charmed by him externally, so much so that they were willing to overlook things that should have been red flags, right? To us looking at it in hindsight, if a man woke up in the middle of the night at the end of my bed and scared the crap out of me, I, I would, you know, I think I could believe that maybe he was doing other things, especially if he said he didn't remember how he got there. And certainly telling someone to leave because you're afraid that you're going to hurt them and that you, your photography is a sickness and you have to take pictures of, of prepubescent girls. All of these are things that probably should have been reported to the police, but it seems that even in the cases that the police were called, he was able to get off with essentially a slap in the wrist, which is how we got here. In Florida, the manager of a dating service offered a tape that Wilder had made in 1981. He talked a lot about himself on the tape, and he said he wanted a long relationship, but not a marriage. He was seeking, quote-unquote, depth and sincerity. He also indicated that he preferred women in their early 20s. Keep in mind that Christopher Wilder was 30, or in his late 30s at this point. The FBI broadcast the tape to help women who were approached by him to see him for what he was. He could be anywhere and any pretty woman was a potential victim. There were a lot of shopping malls around the country and one thing they knew for sure is that he would not stop abducting and killing pretty girls until he was caught. The next victim was a 16-year-old girl, Tina Marie, who had filled out a job application at Hickory Farms north of Torrance, California. Wilder had followed her into the store and on the way out offered her $100 to pose for him for a billboard that he was shooting that would be seen for miles around. What he needed, however, were a few test rolls. 
Apparently, she did pose for some photos, but after one role, she told him she had to go home. And to her surprise, he grew angry. He pulled out a revolver, a revolver and sucked the barrel into her mouth. He then said, your modeling days are over. Binding her, he put her into the car, still the stolen one from Texas, and drove with her for over 200 miles to El Centro, California. There, he already had a motel room and took her inside. He tied her to the bed and attacked her, but he didn't kill her. It was speculated by many in law enforcement that Wilder stopped just short of killing her because he believed that she was robotic enough to help him capture other victims. Basically, Tina Marie's ability to be a compliant victim is what saved her. And I will be very honest, this does not work for everybody. Um, you hear stories of women who are very compliant and do everything that they are supposed to do and they are still murdered. Um, I say that it is certainly um, not Stockholm Syndrome, but very much a coping mechanism and a, a survivability mechanism. You want to try to stay alive as long as possible. And sometimes that means befriending and being compliant in hopes that that work. It does not always work, but I've seen some miraculous cases where it has allowed a victim at least enough space to be able to scream for help or, or run. So I'm very glad that in this case, this worked for her. A missing persons report was filed for Tina Marie as she was 16 years old immediately. She had a family and a boyfriend who insisted that she would not have run away, and, and she'd clearly been at Hickory Farms. From there, no one knew where she had gone, but she had not come home. That's when the store manager identified Christopher Wilder as the man who had seen approached her. Wilder and his young captive, Tina Marie, now turned and drove east. They stayed in Taos, New Mexico on April 7th. He began to spot newspaper articles about him wherever he went, and the videotape from the, the dating service was broadcast on television. Now, millions of people would know him on site, and they knew the kind of car he was driving. And yet, that did not stop him. The next girl was also 16. Donette Wilt was filling out a form at a store in Gary, Indiana, when another girl interrupted her, introduced herself as Tina Marie Wilder, and asked her to step outside the store to speak to the manager. That turned out to be Wilder. He had forced one victim to lure yet another, and then he grabbed Donette and used a gun to force her into the car. He placed duct tape over both her eyes and mouth, and since he had a driver, Tina Marie, who had already been assaulted, he was free to torment and rape Donette in the car. They stopped at a hotel in Ohio, where Donette was treated to Wilder's special torture device and shocked her feet. Then they all drove across Pennsylvania to New York State. Tina Marie and Wilder took photographs at Niagara Falls before they went to Rochester, New York for the night. There, Donette was raped and tortured once again. Wilder warned both girls that if they tried to draw attention to themselves or to escape, he would kill them. They believed them, and while he took three or four showers each day, they remained in the various rooms. When Wilder saw on television appeal for Tina Marie's return, he drove them both away and then took Donette out near the woods near Pinyan. He tried to suffocate her, but she struggled so much that he really couldn't get a grip. So he took out his knife and stabbed her front and back. She pretended to be dead, so he left her there and walked back to the car. When she knew he was gone, Donette struggled to her feet and walked out to a road where she found someone who would take her to the hospital. She told police that Wilder was driving the Mercury Kruger and was headed towards Canada, and he had told the girls that he would not be taken alive. 
Donette is my freaking hero. I do not know how, you know, that sweet angel baby was able to survive this. But the bravery to lay there knowing that you could be dying and then to get up not knowing that he was coming back and head out to find somebody. My goodness. I At 16, I don't think I would have the wherewithal. So I hope she is somewhere having the best life. Even after all of this, Christopher Wilder wasn't really desperate to not be found by the police. And he goes looking for yet another victim. At Eastview Mall near Victor, New York, he had Tina Marie persuade 33-year-old Beth Dodge, who was getting out of a gold Pontiac Trans Am, to come over to the car. She did. Wilder forced her inside and took her car keys. He had Tina Marie drive the Trans Am following him. When Wilder found a deserted gravel pit, he made the woman get out and he shot her in the back. He then left the Mercury there and him and Tina both got into the Trans Am and drove away. Wilder seemed to know that at this point his time was about up. He drove to Boston's Logan Airport. He gave Tina Marie, Tina Marie enough money to fly back home and get a cab, and they parted ways. Just like that, he let her go. She later said that he had expressed a desire that she not be with him when he died. She barely got away with her life, and even boarding the plane, she said, she believed that he, she, he would shoot her in the back. Oddly, when she arrived in Los Angeles, she asked the cab driver to take her to a lingerie store first. She spoke to the sales manager and told her that Wilder had cut her hair short to make her look like the girl in the movie Flashdance. Then some friends saw her and took her to the police. On April 13th, Wilder tried to grab yet another girl. He saw a 19-year-old by the side of the road whose car had broken down. Wilder offered her to give her a lift to get gas, but when he passed the gas station, she knew something was up. She insisted he stop, so she pull he pulled out a gun. However, he had to slow down in one place, and she grabbed the opportunity to open the door and leap out. Rolling away, she managed to escape. Wilder dumped several articles, including his camera, suitcase, and things he had taken from the victims, trophies, and then drove into New Hampshire. At a service station in Colebrook, New Hampshire, about 12 miles from the Canadian border, he drew the attention of two state troopers. It's said that they recognized the car from the FBI descriptions and the recent news reports, um, and they thought that Wilder was acting strangely enough to investigate. They looked at him as he stood talking to the attendant and thought he looked like the guy on the, the FBI posters, but without a beard. His tan indicated that he was obviously not from New Hampshire. The troopers pulled in and got out of the car. They called out to him and he dove inside the vehicle, apparently going for a gun. In the scuffle, one trooper, Leo Jellison, jumped on his back, grabbing for his 357 Magnum, and two shots were fired. One went through Wilder into the trooper's chest, lodging in his liver. The second went into Wilder's heart, obliterating it. He died on the spot. It was Friday the 13th. It had been 47 days since the first responded disappearance, and he had been spent 26 days on the run. Christopher Wilder's look had just run out. Found in his position were the, was a 357 resolver, revolver, extra ammunition, handcuffs, rolls of duct tape, rope, a sleeping bag, his business partner's credit card, the specially designed electrical cord for stunning the women he picked up, and a novel by British author John Fowles called The Collector. 
Published in 1963, this story features a lonely entomologist who collects butterflies who also captures and imprisons a pretty art student named Miranda. He keeps her in his basement. Seeing nothing wrong with what he has done, he treats her well, expecting that this will eventually win her love and willingly gives her anything she wants except per accepts her freedom. And while she grows to need his attention, since he's the only person she ever sees, she also feels that he's evil for imprisoning her. Nevertheless, she belongs to him. And this fantasy is not uncommon among sadists. So the collector is interesting because it comes up quite a bit in discussions about serial killers, about men who have rape and abduction fantasies. Um, it actually is also... Um, which I will hearken this back to the BAU again, but is actually the plot of one of a string of episodes or episode arc um, in which a gentleman is keeping a lady victim, keeping a, a woman captive in his home based on this novel, The Collector. So this is extremely common reading, much like we often talk about, um, or there used to be discussion about people who committed um, mass shootings, especially um, young white men, and their reading of Catcher in the Rye and their obsession with Holden Caulfield. Jeffrey Dahmer is um, also in this list of men who craved this idea of being able to just make people their sex slaves um we know that Jeffrey Dahmer you know famously murdered 17 men and then um lesser known are Leonard Lake and Charles Ng who tortured and killed an unknown no number of people man and female but they would also imprison women in this sex dungeon that they had created for long stretches of time but didn't kill them and one of the women was kept in a box for seven years the therapist who had treated Wilder over a period of time knew that he loved this book and that practically memorized it. For him, it had been the ultimate fantasy. And now he would have no more chances to make it come true. Thank God. Yet Wilder's wretched tale did not end there. Six days after the autopsy, New Hampshire pathologist Robert Christie took a phone call from a man claiming to be from Harvard. According to Newton, this man said that Harvard wanted Wilder's brain for study. He agreed in the interest of science, but he wanted a formal written request. It never materialized, and when he phoned Harvard, no one there admitted to making any such call. Even as Wilder was cremated in Florida, there were many questions and concerns about the whereabouts of some of his victims. The families of the missing were sick with grief that they may never find their daughters, and yet gradually a few more were located and identified. I will take this time to note that the two women that are his earliest known victims, uh, Beth Kenyon and Rosario Gonzalez in Florida, to the date of this recording, their remains have never been found. On May 3rd, um, over a month after she disappeared, Cheryl Bonventura was found under a tree in Utah. She had been killed with the gun and also stabbed. Her time of death is estimated to be around March 31st, which is about two days after she was spotted with Wilder in that restaurant. Eight days later, in the Angeles National, Florida, Michelle Corfman was discovered. She was badly decomposed, and it took almost a month to notify her family of the identification. Some women who were murdered in places where he is known to have been on those dates are tentatively linked to him as well, particularly in Las Vegas. A couple of girls identified him from mug shots as, mug shots as the man who grabbed them in Boynton Beach, Florida in 1983 and forced them to perform oral sex on him. They were 10 
and 12. Even in Australia, he was linked to numerous incidents of sexual molestation and two deaths. In 1965, two decades before his killing spree, two young women had accompanied a man matching Wilder's description to a beach near Sydney, and they were both found raped, strangled, and placed in a shallow grave. Two more girls had also been grabbed at malls in Florida. One was stabbed to death, and the other was never found. Several sets of skeletal remains were found near property that Wilder owned, and one woman was estimated to have been dead for several years. In other places where Wilder has been seen, girls disappeared. Some were found dead, and others disappeared altogether. Officer Jellison recovered from his wounds and was happy to know that the identity of the man he had stopped from escaping into Canada. Thanks to him, it was the end of the line for Christopher Bernard Wilder, who left an estate estimated to be between worth half a million to almost $2 million. And while he's credited with eight victims, he's tentatively linked to so many others that it's impossible to know the final count of his victims. Since he died in an apparent suicide, it's suggested that when the police began to close in on him, he had already decided that he would kill himself. However, he wanted his final spree before doing so. So given the fact that he went to California and then New Hampshire, it seems more likely that he was trying to just flee to another country. He got fairly close to the Mexican border, but something must have made him decide to turn around and go cross country. It's believed that his intent was to cross into Canada, but that's unlikely since he didn't choose a populated place to do so. But when he died, he was 10 minutes from the border. Christopher Wilder is interesting in that he was a nomadic killer. He also demonstrates the fact that serial killers will use different methods to kill. He used suffocation, stabbing, shooting. One victim he stabbed and shot. Several were let go. Many were tortured. Some were just killed for their cars. He left them in rivers and rest areas. He left one in a gravel pit the only constant in his killing was that he kept his victim type very stable it's always these very pretty young women psychologist al c carlisle believes that serial killers have divided personalities and wilder certainly was able to exhibit exhibit a good side that fooled people but Carlisle points out that that's the bad side that harmed them. He was able to maintain a public persona of an upstanding citizen, run a successful business, and even as he entertained and act out these darker fantasies, as each one played out and life became more disappointing for him, Wilder's fantasies became more and more violent. And nevertheless, psychologist A.I. Al Carlisle admits that the pathological processes that leads to the development of an obsessive appetite and possibly an addiction to kill is one of the most perplexing psychological mysteries that we have yet to solve. That is the story of Christopher Bernard Wilder, a some what some would consider a spree killer, what some would consider a serial killer, someone that I just consider a really shitty, horrible human being who I'm glad is dead. He left a wake of dead women and broken families, and then they didn't get any type of justice, and they can't ask questions about their missing loved ones or the kills that they can't confirm that he actually did because he decided that he wanted to die and not go to jail for what he had done. Again, this story is can be a lot um so if you're like me take a bubble bath have something nice to drink have some tea think about something beautiful and wonderful and tell the women in your life how amazing they are um and just remember i mean i think as time has gone on this was you know the early 80s 90s um 
certainly we are better equipped now to know that this is not safe, right? Getting into cars with people you don't know, letting people lure you away from where you are. Um, so I just hope that we are all taking precautions and sharing with each other ways that we can keep each other safe. And certainly I am a firm believer that we can all talk about ways we can stay safe. But if the people that are intent to do us harm are being stopped, then really all of it's for, for null, right? So again, yeah, obviously we should be hoping and praying that we can get these kinds of people off the street when we see early signs that they may have predilections or dispositions for these types of things. But you never know. Many times people do have strange fantasies um, and and desires and they go to get therapy um, because the, the desires and the thoughts scare them. They don't give in to the darkness. And then you have people like the Jeffrey Dahmers and the Leonard Lakes and the Charles Ings and the Ted Bundys and in this case the Christopher Wilders of the world who let the darkness consume them even though there's so much bright light that could be in their lives. Um, so I just urge you to take care of each other, um, look out for each other and let's just spread a little kindness. Um, and let's all just be light to each other this week. No darkness. Um, thank you for listening. Um, I am your host V again. Uh, you can catch me if you would like to talk about this episode or any others that we have covered, or if you'd like to make suggestions about episodes that I should cover, um, drop me um, a line and let me know about the episode. Uh, my email is uh, murdervpod at gmail.com. That's murdervepod at gmail.com. You can email me, drop me a line there. I would love to hear from you. Um, and if you would like to come on and talk about murder, I'm always open to having guests. So let me know. You can also drop me a message on Twitter um, from either of my accounts. My personal is at VJ underscore Burton, or you can do the show's Twitter and that's at murder VEE pod. Um, you can catch me there. You can send me a message and let me know what you think on there as well. Um, I love hearing from you guys. Please reach out. We're also on Insta under the same handles at VJ underscore Burton and at Murder V Pod. Um, you can, again, I love reaching, reach out, talk to me, message me, let me know what you think of the show and let me know, of course, how I can improve, if you improve the show as well. If you um, listen to me on Apple Podcasts, please like, subscribe, leave a review. Um, if you're on Spotify, subscribe there as well. Um, yeah, let's just keep listening, growing the viewer base, Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to me um, mispronounce Revolver multiple times during this episode. Um, yeah, and thank you. And until next week, I am your host, V. Thank you.